0: The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time.
2: Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us, and also great to have my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway here. Last week, we tackled a single topic, and we're going to stick with that this week as well. It's going to be a very different topic, but uh, I I enjoy this format, and we've gotten some great feedback on it, so we're going to try it again this time. Elliot, why don't you uh, set it up for us, please?
0: Sure. Yeah. Thank you, John. And thank you, everyone, for the feedback on the single topic episode. So that was uh, really helpful. And, um, you know, we're not necessarily going to do it every week, but let's dive in again with another one. And it's another one of those very timely ones. Let's talk about energy. Um, you know, it was housing last week. A lot of people are talking about housing this week. Uh, you know, energy seems to still be in the headlines quite a bit. Um, and it started even before uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, but it's something that. You know, I think is on everyone's mind, and I've had a lot of thoughts. Not necessarily because I'm invested in the space. I'm not. Not necessarily because I'm going to be moving things around in my portfolio because of energy. I'm not. I'm not a macro investor. Not a trader about this stuff. Um, but it's something that I think matters for our economy. And there are critical questions that much like with housing, though housing, my investing intrigue is a a little uh, more mature and and ready than it is in energy. um, You know, I think it has broad ramifications for how you think about the state of the economy and for certain businesses where, you know, if you're working on, some discretionary consumer discretionary company, you have to think about whether uh, wallets are as intact in the near term, not necessarily long term in the business, but it's something that you know might cross your mind. So, let's talk about energy. Um, what I think is going on and what I think matters, and so a lot of this, you know, is my opinion, not necessarily. Reality, not necessarily total fact, but I'll, I'll I'll try to separate the fact from from where it is my opinion. Um, Russia exports over four and a half million barrels per day. That's a lot of oil, and Europe receives over half of that. So when we talk about oil prices in the markets right now, you know, people talk about the reference benchmarks, whether it be WTI, which is the North America reference, or uh, you know the U.S. reference, or Brent crude, uh, London Brent, which is most relevant for Europe. And you know, when I think about what's happening right now, I think about it as a spot supply shock. There's an acute supply shock from Russia's supply um, that had been uh, fulfilling the energy needs of um, a good chunk, of not a good chunk, but of, of a decent amount of Europe's energy needs and has been fulfilling the needs of a lot of the world. Um, what happens is you can't immediately replace the supply that has uh been taken off markets in the near term now the fact is a lot of that su- supply hasn't necessarily been taken off market immediately um Europe is still buying some Russian oil for better or worse that is what it is today and you know in a lot of ways um, if Europe's not willing to buy it there are other countries like China and India who are willing to buy it much like money these commodities the demand is fungible so if you take it out of one, place, and it's still being consumed elsewhere, it's going to be bought, whether you like it or not. um, That's the reality. There are further complexities, and you could talk about how Russia relied on a lot of Western energy company technological capability to get their oil out of the ground, and that might impair their ability to do so on an ongoing basis. That's a different story. But in the spot, in the immediate term, right here, right now, you've removed a considerable amount of supply. And what's that done? And and what that's done? And I think you can see it most clearly in the energy futures curve, where you know when I was preparing this, the spot price was over 100. The futures price, uh, by and large, going uh, one and a half, two years out, was still in the 70s. Um, Things have come down in the spot and up on the futures curve a little bit, but still you have this major premium between the price today and the price starting six months out and, and one year out. And the reason behind that is, you know, there is still other supply that could come online and replace Russia, though it can't come online immediately. It takes some time. And to the extent that um, just last week, uh, the U.S. announced a pretty dramatic release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, you know, a million barrels a day, um, that replaces, you know, half of what uh, Russia was exporting to Europe in particular, and a little less than a quarter of what they're exporting to the world. um, and the U.S. is going to buy that out in the futures curve. It's a nice arbitrage trade. You need to be able to release supply now and no one could instantly create supply. Um, and it, it it kind of like smooths the path of energy prices from today to the future. And it's it's already having a bit of an effect. Um, you know, uh, spot prices are down over 10 percent since that started. Um, so you know, we are in the middle of what I'd call a spot squeeze. Now, the other thing that we need to think about um, is that oil is not necessarily a true market. People say this about a lot of things, but most of the supply in oil is controlled by a cartel, globally speaking. And that cartel in particular, you know, we call it OPEC, but that's that's what it is. It's a cartel. If you go back to seven years ago, um, to that fateful Thanksgiving oil crash, um, you know, they the, the aftermath of that was... You know, the Saudis said many times over that their lesson learned was they let prices stay too high, giving too much incentive to other sources of supply coming in economically so. Um, And right now, all the rhetoric from Saudi is that they're not going to increase supply in the near term. Um, But at the same time, I don't think they necessarily unlearned that lesson of the recent past, which is that the cure for high prices is high prices. Um, So there's plenty of economic supply in the world that's readily available to come online globally. Some of it, you know, it runs a range of complexity where Saudi could tomorrow say we're ramping production and and there you go to um, U.S. shale, which takes about six months to 12 months to truly ramp production to a country like Venezuela, who's got considerable idled supply. Though requires a degree of uh, geopolitical negotiation that may or may not come to fruition. But either way, the point is there is a lot of supply out there. And then, you know, I've spoken mostly of the supply side, but I, I for years, had thought the demand side was where the interesting dynamics are taking shape, which is that OECD demand has started to decline in places where, uh, like Cali, where alternative energy is even more prominent. Uh, than it is nationally or in some other countries in the West, Um, the oil demand has actually started to to decline in more pronounced ways than merely peaking and rolling over slightly. And the rest of the world is forecast to peak, depending on the forecaster, uh, whether it be the EIA or some other sources, between 2023 and 2027. Um, And those numbers have been pulling forward uh, each year. The harder part to predict is that with COVID, you had this pretty precipitous drop, and then uh, recovery 2022 will pass um, globally levels, or will, will reach back to 2019 levels. But either way, growth will be slow between now and whenever the peak does occur. Um, emerging markets have replaced demand from OECD, and it's the, the entire source of growth. But the problem for oil is that these places, they don't have the infrastructure to support massive consumption per capita in the first place. And they've been building that out as their economies have matured. Uh, but there's no encumbrance to keep legacy going in the same way that OECD, OECD countries have. And new development can be pursued from first principles with a better mix of alternatives and efficiencies. So global demands bounce back. We're going to pass uh, 2019 levels ever so slightly this year, 100 MPBD. And you know, then the other question is, how much does this matter for the economy? How much does, does this matter for consumers? I've seen people compare this to the 70s and the 2008 shock. And, you know, I I strongly feel that it's nothing like it. So in the 70s, energy went from about, you know, in the beginning of when when prices hadn't started rising yet from about 6% of PCE to nearly 10% of PCE. In 2008, energy spend went from 4% of PCE when the rise started to nearly 7% at its peak. Right. Both those are pretty considerable, uh, really impactful numbers today we will have gone from a little more than three percent to four percent of PCE. So even at its worst today, um, you know, you're you're back to where you were in 2001 levels of pocket pinch from energy itself, from oil. Uh, in particular sorry i said energy i'm not i should not be using those interchangeably there so it's worth asking i think in moments like these why these changes have come about like why we use so much less energy today than we had in the past and i think a good chunk of that is because um you realize how vulnerable you are to these shocks and you start developing and working on efficiencies and so when oil got more expensive in 08 there were considerable responses in multiple ways economic incentive justified finding new supply sources, developing new technologies to extract supply, which creates future supply that puts further pressure downward on the price of oil. And you have incentive to develop and invest in efficiency, right? Efficiency has done perhaps more than alternatives. Um, You know, I think back to my first car, which was a Jeep and it averaged uh, like seven miles a gallon, a nice V8 Jeep to my Jeep today which averages um, nearly 20 miles to the gallon. That's a considerable difference. And that's from the year 2000 to uh, 2015 vintage. And I'm not even at a a newer car, which would be even more efficient. And it goes to investments in alternatives, which have become economic far quicker than people expected, kind of like Moore's Law rate in solar in particular, and um, in wind, in electric vehicles, which consume no matter which way you slice it less oil than do um, uh, combustible engines. So, you know, these things really matter. And energy needs are a constant of humanity, no matter what, you know, from from the very beginning, we need energy, whether it be the calories we consume or some kind of fire to uh, make our food edible. Oil is not going away anytime soon. I'm not here to make that argument. Um, But I think, you know, between this price shock and the backdrop of How much we are, the backdrop of geopolitical tensions, and how vulnerable we are to the whims of some countries who are not very kind. It's a stark reminder and a distinct catalyst of our need to diversify energy sources and to make consumption as efficiently as possible. So, I think what we may be seeing right now is like a last gasp of some of the true uh, vulnerability and relevance of oil in some ways. And so, you know, I want to open this up for a conversation with you guys because I think there are be some really helpful perspectives. But, you know, how much does oil matter for the economy? What are the ramifications for investing? Um, do you guys agree or disagree with this uh, take I'm laying out here? Well, I'll start with uh, just my own personal
1: biases and background and a giant disclaimer and caveat, which is that I'm a total tourist here. So I find this stuff fascinating. I read about it, I think about it, uh, but I haven't made uh, an investment in anything energy related in over a decade. And I don't have any plans to do it anytime soon, just because I don't find it to be something I can understand or forecast very well. So uh, I wouldn't, I I always, you know, disclaim that nothing I say should be taken as any sort of investment recommendation, just because I don't want to inadvertently lead people astray. And that applies Fourfold here because I really don't consider myself particularly knowledgeable on all this stuff, and that and goes back actually.
0: To too. So, let, let, yeah, let yeah. me pile on to your disclaimer right. there, right?
1: So, what I might be able to do is, um, you know, just make some observations. And actually, the way this all started for me was almost exactly 10 years ago. This was at my old firm before I started antibiotic. I got kind of parachuted in, uh, I was not the energy analyst, and they kind of asked me to become one in a hurry, and I was parachuted into a bankruptcy where I was put on the creditor's committee. We were an unsecured lender and then became a dip lender in the bankruptcy and ultimately an equity holder post-reorg. In this company, this was an offshore oil company that managed to file for bankruptcy uh, despite a relatively benign environment. So you can imagine how screwed up this company was. And uh, it filed again about five years later, I think. So uh, it was a huge mess, but there was a very large, well-known distressed hedge fund that was kind of the main creditor. There was a very large, well-known family office that was almost as large. And then we were kind of number three. So we had a seat at this table and I learned very, very painfully uh, that Basically, nobody in the room was really in charge of anything or really knew what they were doing because we were very quickly taught that we were all the dumb money at the poker table because no one at the table was really and truly part of the Houston oil and gas mafia. And we learned, too, that what we thought we knew, thanks to our advisors about some of the regulatory issues that we were facing, uh, we really didn't know. And that was all outside of kind of the core issue here, which is, you know, what's a good economic decision when it comes to drilling an oil well or maintaining a certain level of production or whatever. So it was just a mess. So maybe I'm once bitten, twice shy. That's a fair accusation. I don't know. But I just, I spent enough time reading and thinking about it to feel like I know what I don't know. And that's a whole lot when it comes to this. Now, that said, um, I love thinking about it and reading about it, I would recommend to everybody if you want to get kind of a, a good layman's uh, education in it. Uh, Daniel Jurgen has written kind of some of the classic books in the field, uh, The Quest and The Prize, and then a few years ago, The New Map. I'd recommend all three of those. I think they're three of the best books you could imagine on the topic. Uh, Vaclav Smil is a professor in Canada. He's been a favorite of Bill Gates three years writing uh in a non-academic way about a whole range of topics and it's written quite a bit about energy and those are those are good too um and actually daniel juergen gave an interview just pretty recently here that i thought was it was pretty insightful with uh ezra klein uh, on a podcast actually you could search for that if you're if you're interested about it and, and by coincidence his wife is actually uh somewhat of an expert on russia and has just written a book about russia so it's kind of a nice uh dinner table conversation these days i'm sure so anyway uh I guess Elliot, in regards to your uh, proposition here, I guess I agree with parts of it and disagree with parts of it. I mean, this is clearly a supply shock. There's no doubt about that. I would probably temper the conclusion that this is not a true market just because it is artificial in so many ways, because it's you know controlled by a cartel. I mean, I think even more meaningfully than that, uh, you know the. Oil and energy, just in general, is, energy policy is foreign policy, right? Like you can't disentangle energy production from national security. And so I think those issues actually loom a lot larger than something like OPEC, right? I mean, I think OPEC has been defanged in a lot of ways over the last 20 years. So I would look first and foremost to the fact that the four biggest players in the energy world are the United States, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China, and those are four very big, very important, very powerful countries, and they control essentially all the supply and all the demand that really matters around the margins, right? And so, if you can figure those four pieces of the puzzle out and how they fit together, you've solved everything else, which is to say that it's kind of impossible. So, um, I don't, I, I don't mean to say that OPEC doesn't matter. Of course, they do matter, and every incremental barrel of oil, both on the supply and the demand side, does matter, but. Um, it's tough. It's a complicated process. To your point about demand declining, you know, particularly in OECD areas and places like California. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think largely because the growth in those worlds has slowed down. Uh, efficiency's gone way up. Like you said, if I had to bet on one thing, it would be that efficiency gains will continue for the foreseeable future. I think you will see five and 10 and 20 years from now, far more efficient everything, whether that's an automobile or anything else that uses, any sort of non-renewable hydrocarbon, I think that is a very good bet. Um, But to your last and most interesting question here as to whether or not we've seen kind of the peak of oil's relevance to the economy, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's certainly plausible. And I'm sympathetic, I think, if you're getting to this argument that by doing what Russia has just done, That it may backfire in a lot of ways because, and and look no further than what Germany has said, right? I mean, the German chancellor just came out and said, you know, forget about everything that Merkel said and did and forget about everything we're committed to right now. Like, we are trying to cut the cord. They're not going to be able to cut the cord anytime soon, but they're going to try to cut the cord to Russia as quickly as possible. And, you know, things that were once unthinkable, like nuclear, are even back on the table in a lot of ways. So, even in the short run, if it means burning more coal, and not cutting off Russian oil and gas. It's, you know, it, th- this could really matter by 2030, which is really interesting, right? I mean, the, the problem with the idea that this is the peak of oil's um, relevance to the economy is that a, it's not clear to me that there's going to be a quick enough adoption to anything else. Let's say in the next 20 years to really make a huge dent, like, well, we'll, Will there be a dent? Yes. I think almost inevitably there'll be a dent, but even something like electric vehicles, right? I mean, so I read in trying to do some research for this, that uh, an electric vehicle, whether it's a a Tesla or any of the other brands that are out there is somewhere between 20 and 25 percent plastic. And it's impossible to make any of that plastic without hydrocarbons. Uh, It's impossible to do anything agriculturally in the modern world without hydrocarbon-based fertilizers that are used in the production process, it's, it's impossible to even make any of the things that you need to make this transition, not to mention the fact that we don't have the transmission assets in place to really take advantage of a lot of the alternative sources of electricity generation. So, I don't know. On that one, um, it's a fascinating debate. I mean, all else equal, I would certainly love to have that happen. I'd love to see this be the end of oil's relevance or, or the peak of oil's relevance to the economy. But I just, I think it's going to be a longer road than a lot of people expect,
0: I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, it's part of what I'd say half the reason I put it out is to like be provocative and think it through because I get interesting feedback and learn some things that I otherwise wouldn't have. Um, but, you know, I, I can't remember um, exactly where I saw it, but a chart of like the number of horses versus GDP. And there had been a pretty linear re- relationship uh, heading into the advent of the automobile, right? And suddenly, you know, it, it that relationship was no longer relevant. Um, and, you know, that's much like energy, right? That was your source of energy for uh, getting around, for mobility in a lot of ways. And that yeah, that's dis- a
1: good point. I, I saw something similar about that. There was uh, a TED Talk, I think, with a guy that was... I forget his name or his background, but he was trying to make the same point that like in the, in the transportation world, like horses really, really mattered. And everybody kind of may say the importance of an automobile forever. And it didn't matter until it did all of a sudden. And that's true. I mean, these transitions take years and decades and it's always easy to dismiss them right up to the point that they completely change the world and take over. And I think in a lot of ways, non-fossil fuel-based transportation has already arrived and already changed the world. I just think the, the transition will be linear and not exponential. It will take a couple of decades rather than a couple of years to get to where, you know, let's say the fleet on the road in the United States, if you want to make an arbitrary cutoff of like three quarters of all the vehicles on the, on the roads in America are non-internal combustion, I would probably put the over under on that at like, 2040?
0: Sure, yeah. Three quarters is a long way away, right? It takes our our fleet's over 10 years old now. (laughs) The age has gone up and it takes a long time to turn it over. But when you get 10%, and you're at a critical mass, um, you know, once it hits 10% of the fleet, it's probably over half of new car sales at that point. (laughs) Which is.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, they're going to be meaningful as a percentage of new cars. So there you are. And that'll continue to grow, I think. Uh, but I guess so. it, it kind of gets down to like somewhat of a debate of semantics because you said peak relevance. And so like, is this the all-time peak? <laughs> that's that's like, an I, I could see that for sure, right? I mean, like, w- will oil matter more or less at any point over the next 20 years? Like, yeah, I'd probably bet less, but I still think it'll be like amazingly important and still be the source of. Wars and economic jousting and strife and all sorts of stuff. I I just think it'll still really matter. So, like, let's say even by 2040, if three quarters of the fleet on the road is non-oil-based internal combustion engines, like a quarter is still a huge chunk of a huge market, and it'll still matter. And like, you still don't have any replacement on the horizon for all the non-transportation-related stuff that really matters. And so, if if oil's a hundred billion dollar or a hundred million barrel a day market right now, which I think is roughly where we are, I could see it being smaller in 2040, but I don't see it being half or you know zero or something like that.
0: I'm with you there. I'm with you there. But um, with a lot of things, if you're not growing and you start shrinking, you know the value, the relevance, they all start going down pretty fast. Um, and just thinking through the percent of wallet share, like, you know, it just matters so much less to the day-to-day person's life. So people still see and feel sticker shock when the price of oil goes up very quickly, but the true relevance, you know, I think it stings very differently to the generation who had to face lines in the seventies that it does. I mean, when I got my first car. I remember going down to Atlanta for college and it was, um, you know, 92 cents to fill up a tank, 90, 92 cents a gallon to fill up a tank. Um, and, you know, it's much higher now, and yet it still as a share of wallet versus PCE is is about the same, um, which is right. remarkable to think about, right? It is.
1: Yeah. And look, I think, I think this is something you were getting at earlier too, which I don't want to Overlook, I'm certainly not dismissive of, is that all of the horrible and real pain that we're feeling, and we should all remember that you know there are hundreds of millions of people out there just trying to live their lives, and to do so they need affordable energy. Um, And so, as much as this is you know an interesting academic debate, it's also like a very significant real world problem that comes with a lot of human suffering. So I I don't want to lose sight of that. But if if you take that as it is like the one potential good side of this is that if you have countries like Germany or all of Europe, or to a lesser extent, the United States feeling this pain, this acute pain right now, it it has to increase the attention and resources devoted to innovation. And that hopefully will be only a good thing because I think, again, I think, even the, the staunchest uh, backer of the oil and gas industry would say, like, it'd probably be a good thing for humanity and the planet if we could all develop like alternative, cheap, reliable sources of energy. And this will hopefully spur us along that road. If, if you want to take a, you know, a positive spin on things.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way, because that is a big part of what I was trying to get at. You know, I think a lot of times what it takes is i mean there's this saying never waste a good crisis right, right when it right. you don't think when, when energy's cheap you don't really spend much time energy effort resource trying to find ways to get away from it and we've just gone through effectively a, a half decade plus where energy was pretty cheap and it was much cheaper than it was the prior decade too um so that was a setback for the pursuit of. Alternatives, even though some technologies have advanced considerably along the way, Um, and now you get this juncture where yes, the technologies have advanced, but we haven't deployed them as widely as we otherwise would have. And you wake up with a step change in how much energy costs, and you start truly thinking about okay, you know, we've come a long way with technology. Let's go for it. Like I didn't even realize the extent to which battery technology had advanced and had gotten considerably cheaper than it had been before. Um, until you know, I started digging into this a little more, and it was kind of mind-blowing how much um, you know the the trajectory of battery pricing has followed Moore's law in its own right. Um, it's something that you know hadn't crossed my mind at all, and I think that has major ramifications as well because that had been one of the missing pieces of going a little farther down the road toward. Um, some more efficient and alternative paths.
1: Yeah, it's huge. And again, from my limited understanding of it as as a complete and total layman on the subject, battery technology is way harder than you would think it is. And if there were to be that kind of continuous improvement, a Moore's law style improvement in battery storage capabilities and overall technology, that would be a game changer. I mean, that's the kind of thing you would need to wake up five or 10 years from now and just see a completely different world than you think is possible today. And that's completely in the realm of possibility, right? I mean, again, go back to what the U.S. looked like pre-shale, right? I mean, in 2003, 2005, coming out of 9-11, everybody was still completely terrified of the fact that the U.S. was a huge net importer of oil. And the the number I saw was that as recently as 2008, the U.S. imported a net 60% of its oil and after the shale revolution, less than a decade later, like six or seven years later, right up and through today, it's basically net even, right? I mean, we import a lot of oil because it's, you know, we our refineries are set up for it and we export certain other products. Uh, but that's that's a stunning role reversal, right? To have the U.S. go from like, oh, this is bad, we're going to run out of domestic oil to being the number one global producer of oil and a net exporter in some ways, or at least a kind of a self-sustaining non-net importer is just stunning and fascinating. And if the same thing were to happen in battery technology, which is entirely possible, then yeah, that will be an absolute earthquake in the field.
0: And your point with shale and becoming a net exporter, like it wouldn't have happened without the combination of technology pushing forward without actually being relevant for a long time and a crisis. <laughs> so yeah, no, you know. that's right.
1: Yeah, and it is, as a, to torture the analogy a little bit, right? I mean, George Mitchell was out there running around saying that he thought fracking was possible for 20 or Oh my, it was almost 30 years, and every oil and gas engineer on the planet more or less said he was a, a quack and said it wasn't possible. And then all of a sudden, it was possible with natural gas. And then they said, oh, by the way, you'll never get an oil molecule out of a, a fracked well because the molecules are too big. And then that worked too. And the world changed dramatically. So, you know, I it, stuff like this does happen. And if the same sort of thing were to happen in solar via battery or wind and, and other sources via battery, that would be an absolute game changer in exactly what we need. And, and hopefully it'll happen. And like I said, if there's one positive from the current situation, it's that maybe we're going to spark an acceleration of investment and in the, in the pace of innovation, we're going to mint a whole new generation of brilliant scientists that can help dig us out of this hole with innovation.
0: John, why don't you chime in? Do you have any thoughts on this?
2: You know, I'm kind of a novice here as well, a tourist, as it were. Uh, maybe just a few thoughts. Um, you know, you mentioned the cure for high prices is high prices. Same applies to low prices, right? Right. Um, I wonder whether with with high prices being the cure for high prices, whether it's a little bit less true maybe today because of the impact of ESG and what that has done to companies um, willingness to to invest, um, you know, so maybe there is an impact there that could, um, you know, lead to prices staying elevated for longer than they would otherwise without ESG. Um, then, on the other hand, or another aspect that relates to ESG is um, now you have this whole component of um, security. So, securing your energy supply—we're seeing that in Europe, obviously now—and um, you know, ESG may have to take a backseat to uh, energy security. And so, um, you know, just one example: um, the offshore drilling space. Um, is interesting because the ESG factor was probably, in my mind, the only impediment to offshore drillers uh, finally starting to kind of perform uh, according to where oil prices are and, and how the rest of the sector has performed. Um, and now that, that you have the security component coming into play, I feel like um, there's going to have to be more offshore drilling. Uh, to wean uh, Europe off of uh, supplies from Russia. In terms of the demand side, I feel like pretty interesting um, there as well, because it seems pretty clear that demand from emerging markets will keep growing. It's kind of like um, their demand for protein and meat will keep growing. If you take a place like India, um, there's little doubt that as those uh, incomes go higher, there's going to be higher demand for energy. Um, at the same time, you you do have some kind of um, other effects. We just had someone present at our Asian Investing Summit kind of a long-term thesis uh, around the met- metaverse, uh, which obviously um, is, a, is a global phenomenon, but is really also... Um, you know, taking off in, in Asia, and um, his thought was: as the metaverse kind of takes hold and people spend more time in these virtual worlds, they're going to be consuming less energy. They're going to be driving around less, flying around less. Um, that's a very right. long term trend, obviously, but I can I can see that happening if someone's just sitting at home. On their computer or gaming device, uh, they're going to be consuming less energy probably. Um, Or if you take something like self-driving, which I think um, one impact there is that it's ultimately more fuel efficient because those self-driven cars uh, are going to be just programmed to be more fuel efficient than a person stepping on the gas. Um, and then on the, on the supply side, um, just to add one other uh, area that could become a factor, it's nowhere on the, hori- on the, on the, on the horizon now, but fusion is an area where um, apparently a ton of uh, venture investment is going, and there are some um, promising prototypes there. And um, the promise of that is basically that it solves energy supply um, so there's a lot of, I think, factors, uh, mostly stuff that we can't really predict one way or the other. Um, and I guess my question back to you guys would be, what what do you think are the alt- the investment implications of of all of this? Is any of this uh, actionable for you?
1: Well, you have two things that I meant to bring up that I had on my list. And one was the, it wasn't so much ESG, although that's a valid uh Issue as well as you pointed out, but it was it was more the concept that for all of the explosive volume growth that the shale drillers uh, generated in the U.S. over a decade, let's say, uh, that kind of all came to a screeching halt two or three years over the last two or three years. Uh, none of it ever produced positive cash flow, right? All of it was financed by the capital markets, and then even kind of leading into COVID, a lot of investment investor demand and capital markets demand uh dried up for that kind of unlimited volume growth right i mean the mantra kind of flipped over 6 months to say like before we were only going to compensate you and reward you for volume growth and now we want to actually see things like cash flow and some semblance of return on investment and so yeah is that going to be a problem on top of esg that limits the amount of demand that can or supply that can be brought back online because that would be kind of interesting and kind of a problem. And the other thing that I was going to mention up, which is another on the one hand, on the third hand kind of thing, all these countervailing balances that you have to consider here is that is the emerging world. I mean, we haven't talked at all about Africa. And as you look over the next 10, 20, 30 years, that's going to be a huge source of both population growth and hopefully economic growth. And all around the world and in other countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, you have these huge populations That are, you know, improving their lives and consuming more energy and they're transitioning from things like burning wood into using more conventional fossil fuels like the rest of the world uses or other sources of, you know, potentially renewable but not likely for a long time. So how is that going to impact things and then you get into this other super weird argument that you brought up john which is fascinating is that is, are people going to sit home and, and not travel or not commute or not do anything, you know, like they used to, I mean, because that's just another crazy wrinkle. So it's amazing how many of these permutations you could go through. And to answer your, your, your last question there, which I thought was really interesting was that uh, I think for me, this just boils down to, you know, a fascinating issue that you want to make sure you're not on the wrong side of, like, I don't want to be taking, and I'm certainly not going to be taking an explicit bet, but I don't even want to take an implicit bet where if I'm wrong on any of these key issues, I just get my head blown off because the company or that whatever investment I've made just gets completely, you know, blown to bits because you know some factor outside of its control goes completely nuts. I mean, you know, the the example would be like if if you own an an airline where the competitive dynamic is too severe to overcome a big oil price spike, something like that, and that's purely hypothetical. I don't, but it's that kind of stuff that I want to be really mindful of, kind of the negative art of avoiding energy, second derivative problems. The, the other thing that I'd bring up is the concept, um, and this was a, a Daniel Juergen, uh quote or, or idea. Uh, it was the idea of, of transitioning from an era of big oil to an era of big shovels. And by that, he means the massive supply chain implications for this huge increase in raw materials that have not historically mattered that much, that are gonna matter a ton. Uh, and some of the numbers are just stunning. Like the the amount of copper required is going to go up a lot, and that is uh, not well distributed across the the world. The supply of cobalt, which is particularly important uh, in alternative uh, fuel vehicles, is is the majority of it, and almost all of it in some ways you can access cheaply, is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uh, not a place that I think a lot of people have on their radar screens. Even as you look at simple things like lithium ion batteries, about 80% of that global market is in China and controlled by China. Likewise, about 80% of solar panels are in China. So these have massive implications and I, I don't know what to do about that, but if somebody does and can figure it out, the uh, the ramifications are enormous to say the least.
0: Yeah, a lot of good points there. I wanna go back and you know touch on one of the first ones Phil had earlier mentioned energy, and John, you, uh, nuclear energy. And John, you talked about ESG, and I thought one of the more interesting uh, developments out of this all is Germany's reconsidering nuclear policy, and I think it might happen globally. But it has an ESG tie, where in the recent past it was thought of as not so ESG, um, and very recently, I think it was in February of this year, EU formally designated nuclear power a sustainable green form of. Energy, and so suddenly, what was not ESG has become ESG, and perhaps you have a catalyst to reconsider how that goes. And I think that has big ramifications. You know, uh, Phil talked about Vaclav Smil, and you know, he and some of the other smartest thinkers I've encountered on this all view nuclear as one of the most important green, sustainable, non-variable forms of grid power um, that could help. Ease the uh, fossil fuel burden that our like everyday consumption, so not the our our our, like uh, non vehicle consumption requires. So I thought that was pretty interesting, right? What was once not ESG very quickly became ESG, and perhaps takes an extra step in that direction now. Um, And then in terms of like the emerging world, I think that's a big one. But I you know I I do think there's an extent to which. There are not the same encumbrances of infrastructure, and you could think more about how, if you were starting from scratch and building um, from first principles, what a new uh, modern, um, call it, uh, energy-consuming uh, mobility would look like. You you might veer immediately toward electrical vehicles, and you see this in some uh, emergent Asian economies where a combination of motorized scooters and electric vehicles are far more prominent and a much bigger portion of the total mobility than is uh, combustible engines. Um, so, you know, I think something like that could could look very different in 10 years than it has in the past 10 years. And then for investment ramifications, I'm very much aligned with Phil. I don't want to be caught off guard. I don't want to be caught, um, you know, unaware of some unforeseen risk that I should be considering. Um, I do think you know especially as i look at the home builders you do have to have a little more confidence about like what's the state of the consumer today and will it be better or worse over the next five years which is kind of the investment horizon i try to think most about you know five to ten years um you know so it 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 does matter to a degree it's never going to be the swing factor or the only factor but it's something um that's worth thinking about and uh as we are transitioning the economy to a post-COVID world, it, I think it also has ramifications for how a lot of this uh, balance sheet firepower will or will not be spent by consumers. So those are those are why I'm thinking about it.
1: I agree. Those are those are good points. One other thing I'll chime in, John, with uh, the practical implications, maybe from an investor's perspective, and this will probably sound Obvious to to most people, but if you were looking for a way to stay rich, maybe not to get rich, just because I don't think the returns on capital or the growth rate will be there, especially relative to the massive capital needs that are required. But electrical transmission seems like just about the most obvious thing on planet Earth, at least in North America that I could think of and in lots of the world, because the electrical grid and, and transmission infrastructure that's in place is old. It's unreliable, it's uh, it's undersupplied, we need a lot more of it. And so if you can find ways where you have the capability and the expertise and particularly a way to do it in a, in a rate base, right, where your returns are, are pretty well protected, uh, that seems like just about the most obvious thing I could think of.
2: Okay, great. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot here. Um, Though no specific investment recommendations, I think our listeners will have to go a little further on that front, Um, but uh, it's not our goal to give investment recommendations anyway. But I do think uh, and I hope that this discussion uh, provides some food for thought to uh, everyone listening. Thank you so much, uh, Elliot and Phil, for another uh, fascinating conversation.